This is Linux at Work, episode 5, for the 24th of January, 2021. Welcome. I'm your host, Ben Vasharan, and with me is Chester Wisniewski. Hi, Chester. Hey, Ben. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting back on the podcast train. We're going to have two podcasts back-to-back uh, to start getting ourselves caught up to 2021 and trying to get into a more regular pattern. And as uh, we mentioned in the last episode, we uh, we certainly accelerated the number we did in 2020, and we're hoping to more than outdo that in 2021. Uh, I encourage uh, all of our listeners, specifically for our kind of hardware and software review sections, uh, join us on Reddit and give us some ideas on things you'd like to hear us talk about, or uh, or just join us for the conversation afterwards. We just reviewed the Pine Phone. If you've got a Pine Phone, you know, jump in there. Let us know your thoughts on the Pine Phone and your experiences with it too. I think it's. Uh, we do this for sense of community and it's fun to learn and this is one of our news episodes which is why it's numbered instead of lettered and uh, we've got a pretty good list of things that have been going on recently in the linux community starting with uh linux 5 uh, kernel 5.11 is just about to launch and i think a lot of people are looking forward to you certainly had some issues haven't you ben certainly have uh i went to 5.10 on manjaro running plasma and it was a mistake but I actually needed to switch to 5.10 because there was issues with some snaps that I was running on the LTS kernel that I was previously on because I, I want to keep some system stability and was being quite uh, quite conservative with my kernel versions. But of course, uh, to fix a snap issue, I went to 5.10 and then my device has been locking up. It's been noticeably slower as well, but I can deal with the performance loss. Uh, it's mainly just knowing that when I come back from lunch or going from a bike ride or a run or anything, knowing that when I go to unlock my device, it's going to work. But I've come across this issue where if I go to lock screen, the device just never comes back or even my notebook, um, it will go into standby and never come back. So it's, it's, a 510's been frustrating and, you know, researching the issues that I've had, it seems like I'm not alone out there. You've had your own issues, I think, uh, but others out there as well have just had a really bad time with 510. Yeah, I guess if you want stability, you could go with CentOS, but even that's not what it used to be. <laughs> we haven't really <laughs> talked about that in the podcast, but uh, obviously there's been a lot of news in that space. So there's uh, everybody I know that wants to be in the stable game is largely still on like Ubuntu 16.04 LTS and uh, 18.04 LTS, right? And I just don't have the patience for that. I'm willing to take my hits, uh, my pain with these things. I mean, most of the complaints I've been reading about with 510 have been related to the Zen 2 and Zen 3 architectures from AMD that power the Ryzen and the modern Threadripper chips. And apparently uh, that looks like it's been resolved in 5.11. And not only has it been resolved, but uh, the, some of the early testing suggests that there's a 7 or 8% performance boost across the board, whether you're on a Ryzen-based system or not. Um, my, my main personal computer is a Threadripper, but I believe it's old enough that it's actually the Zen 1 architecture. So I didn't really experience too many problems with 5.10. Uh, but uh, I certainly uh, look forward to 5.11 having a performance increase. You never want you know, to turn, you turn your nose up at that. Yeah, no complaints there. Um, do be careful what you say around CentOS, just for the record. Uh, we may get our first lot of death threats. Uh, I jumped in a Reddit conversation to talk about the CentOS stream, and maybe it's not all bad, and uh, I was downvoted to oblivion and copped numerous uh, feedback of uh, my general stupidity. So uh, careful what you say. <laughs> well, I, 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 I do like to uh, always properly refer to it as IBM's CentOS. 
uh, that's also a way to win a lot of fans. Yeah, I bet. So uh, we actually didn't have that down as a news, news item, but I think like it's quickly worth touching on because when I first heard the news, I, I didn't think it was all bad. I thought, well, you know, CentOS Stream is supposed to be, you know, it's not a fork, but it's a build of uh, RHEL, of Red Hat Enterprise. Now, it makes sense for me that CentOS Stream gets the packages first and actually gets ahead of RHEL, so you can predict what's going to happen in your enterprise environment if you're using CentOS Stream in dev. Uh, but from what I was told, it's, it's not that simple, and uh, I should keep my thoughts to myself. Um, where do you stand with it? I mean, it, to me, it sounds like it's a, a, a bastard stepchild of Fedora and RHEL. Right. I mean, Fedora is kind of your bleeding edge from the IBM Red Hat world. And, you know, RHEL is, is uh, you know, your rock solid, you know, paid for support and you don't want it to change because it's not a desktop operating system. It's probably running some enterprise platform that you want to be stable. So it sounds like the, the CentOS stream to me is going to land somewhere in the middle where it's almost a it's a RHEL beta. Um, but I, I it's it's unclear to me. Uh, why that's a good idea rather than actually just having a rel beta and leaving centos alone <laughs> I, I mean that's that's really i mean what this is is this is ibm's cash grab and no matter how you look at it it's going to tick off a lot of people but they want to make sure that if you want stability you got to pay yeah and uh it's their way of making money and uh, let's be fair uh, red hat have done a lot for linux and open source in general, um, but they also have been very successful at monetizing. But um, a few of the core founders of CentOS have already forked uh, away and are working on their own distributions. So that'll be a space that no doubt we'll talk about throughout 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you if you really want stability, you go with the original evil genius, Larry Ellison, and you uh, you get your unbreakable Linux. So if you want a good kernel, Ben, the unbreakable enterprise release kernel, uh, release five, update four for Oracle Linux. And uh, it's also perfectly secure. You can't break it. It's unbreakable. So I, I, if you continue to have problems, I think you should switch. I'll, uh, I'll take a hard pass there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, KDE Plasma 5.21 is in beta. And I think it's supposed to like launch like real soon now. I think the predicted date is uh, 16 February. So we're only looking about three weeks out. So I know you're a Plasma fan. Have you tried out the beta? And uh, are you looking forward to it? Because I mean, it looks like one of the main things to me that matter that actually make a big difference is that they're, they're finally going to get decent support for Wayland and uh, I'm kind of looking forward to that and I'd be kind of curious on your thoughts. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Wayland. That's pretty much the biggest thing for me. I know there are uh, a few tweaks and changes as well to system notifications and just the general system tray in general. I don't know if I can call it the system tray, but uh, you know, the, the area down by the clock uh, on my system uh, in the left-hand corner, but Wayland supports uh, a big step forward. Wayland is better in almost every way, shape and form I find now. I, I've been trying to use it more so day to day, uh, but better support means better performance uh, and hopefully everything else starts working with it. I'm just got a brief note. Uh, PHP 8 launched a little while ago. I don't think it's in any mainstream distributions yet, but it looks like it's going to be merged with Arch very soon. So if you are an Arch user that relies on PHP applications, you ought to be cautious because if past upgrades 
uh, like PHP 7, uh, it was a good three to six months before most of the mainstream PHP applications actually worked. They all broke. Uh, PHP 7 will remain in the Arch repos, so it's not like you uh, are forced to um, necessarily immediately uh, update your applications to support PHP 8, but it's coming. And uh, as a security person, I don't really see anything I'm terribly excited about, but the, it looks like one of the primary advantages to PHP 8 is it does have a new just-in-time compiler that should improve performance for a lot of apps, and that's always been an issue, certainly in my my cloud instance where I've got some PHP apps running. Uh, PHP is a bit of a CPU hog on some of these apps, so I'm 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 certainly going to try to upgrade to it as soon as I know the apps like Nextcloud and others will support it just to see if I can squeeze a little bit more out of that Amazon juice uh, so I don't have to spend as much money. And of course, uh, if you don't want to update to PHP 8, you can just stay with containerization, not bother about updating your system, and uh, let it run in a few Docker containers, right, Chet? Yeah, you know, Docker is a, a mixed uh, bag sometimes. I know I pick on it a lot because I uh, I just find I find it incredibly inconsistent. A lot of the containers you get, are, there's uh, a lot of very poorly um, containered things, let's say. And, but I, I recently did a, an upgrade. Uh, we, well, we talked about hypervisors in one of our episodes at the end of 2020. And as part of that process, I uh, started migrating a bunch of apps uh, to some new VMs on that new system I built with those hypervisors. And I have to admit, uh, you know, picking and lifting the Dockerized stuff that I had on that system and moving it onto the new system was reasonably painless to back up those containers and restore them on the other system and not really skip a beat. So I, I give it credit for that. I had to do a bit more, you know, manual monkeying around with dumping MySQL tables and stuff for some of the apps that weren't containerized. But uh, I don't mind getting my hands dirty, so I, I'll take it either way. I just, uh, the the what concerns me about the containers as a security professional is, one, you know, Docker runs everything as root, and we could have a whole episode on how terrible of an idea that is. Um, and two is that you're at the mercy of the container developer to keep those things up to date and not have security vulnerabilities. And so many of these containers I get have very old unpatched libraries in them that I'm concerned about allowing them to face the internet. And uh, I mean, yes, they can be hacked into being updated, but you know, the whole concept of it is that it's hands off, right? It just works. And the problem is that means you're trusting other people and I have trust issues. Yeah, I, I understand that. Like one of the things I like thinking about this, uh, you know, new version of PHP, do you know if it works or not? Uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't do is they don't build their own containers. So, uh, like, I'm doing a lot of ad hoc app development at the moment, and it's really not that difficult to pick a operating system, come up with your Docker file that's got all of your build components. So, it, if you want to test your application even to see if it works with PHP 8, you can build a container custom, change it from apt install providing it's debian or ubuntu based uh, you know you can change it from apt install uh, with all your dependencies and php 7 and you can change it to 8 and just see how it goes and run it in dev so uh it does reduce that uh, risk a little bit but yeah uh good luck to everyone updating to to 8. yeah uh, maybe we should do a future episode about uh, the pros and cons of the the dockers and the kubernetes and the the different aspects of this stuff because the, there's certainly enormous benefits for rapid app development and deployment, but there's a security cost and there's a maintenance cost as well. I mean, it's not all uh, it's not all roses. So 
the next story I had in my list was uh, Carillion with this Apple M1 stuff. And I will disclose that I am the opposite of an Apple fanboy and I despise the company and I despise how they treat open source, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I will admit that they build some awfully nice gear. Uh, I'm not an expert in what this port of getting Linux to run on it was all about because to me it's a bit ironic that you'd want to give money to Apple to pay for an Apple experience and actually not get an Apple experience and put Linux on it and support an organization who would just as soon see you die than help you out. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little more from a, a, a non-cynical angle? So hypothetically, you live in a world where you use an M1 Mac, but you don't like Mac OS then this is the story for you. No, like, there was talk, I think, late 2020, where a developer's like, I'm going to port uh, Linux to, to the M1 processor. Here's my Patreon. Donate to me, and that way I can generate an income and make this happen. Then we've got Chris Wade that uh, works for Corellium. I think he's actually an Australian, so uh, kudos to you, uh, though he doesn't live in Australia. Um, He's a CTO there, and he successfully got Linux to boot on the M1. Completely documented, and it's on the Corellium website. Now, you might say, and there is actually a tweet at him. Uh, a guy did make mention, I'm assuming a guy based on the picture, says, what's the point of running Ubuntu on a Mac? And Chris uh, shared a picture of him, and he's got one of those crazy gaming rigs with the arm that goes around from the back of your chair and puts the displays directly in front of you so you can kind of get on your lazy boy and enjoy yourself. Um, but he made a good point that he's got an M1 Mac, um, but he has a 49-inch widescreen monitor that doesn't actually work with the latest version of Mac OS. So by him porting the Raspberry Pi image to M1, it's given him the ability to use his, his really nice gaming rig or workstation. Um, and it's quite a simple process. It's a matter of booting into uh, the recovery firmware on your Mac, uh, running a script, putting in a USB drive that's got the Ubuntu ARM or the Raspberry Pi image on it, and then you can run it off the USB drive. Um, I haven't seen anyone that's actually installed it persistently and shared it around, uh, but they are successfully running the Raspberry Pi image from a USB drive with great success, which is pretty cool. It turns out it wasn't that difficult to get it to run by the looks of things. So if you've got way too much money and a giant ass screen in a gaming chair and enough extra money to also buy an M1 but not want one, this is a great option. Uh, it's the reverse Hackintosh. So I agree with you about the, the money components. One thing I will say about the M1 is for all intents and purposes, everyone's saying the hardware is really nice. Uh, the speeds are phenomenal and the battery life is amazing, and it's fanless, or most of the models are fanless. So there is actually, and I know it's the Apple evil overlords that you particularly hate, Chet, uh, but for all intents and purposes, that is a nice bit of hardware. Everyone's talking highly about it, or a lot of people are. So if you do want that nice bit of hardware, but run a better operating system than Mac OS that has turned into a behemoth, might I add, I use it, I've got a 2015 MacBook Pro with a Retina display uh, and it sits in front of my bike in my garage when I do virtual indoor training and that's it because I just can't stand to use it anymore. Uh, but if you do want that nice hardware and not have to use Mac OS, this is the way to go. 
It may be fanless, but it is not fanboyless. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. Title uh, of the show. So Chromium uh, has, uh, Google's announced that the open source builds of Chrome, uh, which are called Chromium, will no longer be able to use their private API to provide password sync and bookmark sync. And it's certainly thrown a lot of Linux users into a tizzy. Uh, I feel very similar to this the way I feel about the Apple story where I'm going, if you care about open source, why are you using Google's browser? But I guess Chromium technically is open source. And it seems strange to me that if you don't want to use Chrome because you don't like Google, that you would use Chromium and then give Google your passwords and bookmarks. <laughs> Um, but this is going to be a real issue, right? Like uh, a lot of people, I mean, Chromium's arguably probably the most popular Linux browser, I would assume. Yeah, and it works pretty well. Uh, I've got to say, like, it, what, what's the long-term ramifications, though? Like, it, is it that, like, this is being led from Google, so they obviously want people to stop using Chrome, right? Um, or they want people to stop using Chromium to, to go with Chrome. Uh, like, is that the only intent there? Is that why? I can't figure out this one. Yeah, I think Google's motive is to get you to use Chrome and have you logged into Chrome all the time because that's how you're going to do your password and tab sync. And by being logged into Chrome, they get to track you everywhere around the web and sell even more advertisements. And I mean, you got to remember that Google's primary and only revenue stream, uh, aside from apparently charging people to use YouTube now, is ads, right? So uh, I guess there's a lot of alternatives for people, but all of them have their kind of ups and downs, right? Like there's uh, obviously, if you want to use the same rendering engine as Chrome for compatibility, you've got Brave, you've got Edge, you've got Opera, and they all kind of have their things, right? I mean, Opera is owned by the Chinese, which makes me a little uncomfortable. You know, but Brave is headed up by the former Firefox CEO, who's a bit of a homophobe and had some issues and, and not to mention it does some coin mining, which is destroying the planet. Uh, and then you've got, Microsoft, well, what more could I say about Microsoft? Tell us about Microsoft Edge, Ben. Uh, so Microsoft for, uh, Microsoft Edge has been released for Linux uh, in beta, I will say. It's not uh, production just yet. Where do we start with that? So firstly, uh, do you think people will be more inclined to go to Edge considering it's Chromium-based? Like, if you had to share your data with Microsoft or Google, would you have an option of who you'd go with, Chet? I think I'd go with Microsoft because I think they're too incompetent to do anything with it. Okay, that's fair. That's uh, brutal, but fair. I would also add that they've got other revenue streams besides advertising. In saying that, I would like to think that they're not going to continually track our movements considering the, you know, the, the biggest reason I can see for them to bring Edge to Linux is to have more people using Office 365 and monetize. So with that in mind... I did a little bit of an experiment, and this is incredibly shallow, and it's not like I can release a white paper on this. However, what I decided to do was build an open source tumbleweed box, uh, and I just ran uh, Wireshark in the background. And I sat there, and for 20 minutes, it was just ARP requests. Um, you know, who am I? Who else is on the network? And I'll get the responses back exactly what you want to see from an operating system. It's not constantly talking out to update servers or anything else. It was incredibly quiet. So I installed Microsoft Edge, the, the beta. I went through the setup process and naturally I started to see some traffic going back and forth between Microsoft and various telemetry services. So then what I thought I'd do is I'd run the browser but not do anything but go to about blank. So I had the browser open in my operating system, 
we didn't browse to a website that might have you know had JavaScript or anything running in the background. It was just about blank. Nothing else happening in the browser, and it just became very very noisy. Uh, Edge was just constantly sending telemetry back and forth. And of course, I didn't decrypt any of the TLS traffic to, to look at what it was and inspect it any further. But it still irks me that they're collecting so much in the background. They're just constantly looking at what's going on in the browser. I get that it's beta, so maybe it's unfair because as part of a beta process, you collect telemetry to see how people are using it. Are there any crashes? That kind of stuff. So let's see what happens when it goes GA. But Microsoft, what are you doing? Just give us a browser. Chances are we're gonna be using Office 365 if we're using Linux for work. Stop tracking us, leave us alone. <laughs> I don't know, where do you send? Yeah, I mean, if you, ever try to, if you ever try to get rid of Cortana, you'll realize how deeply Microsoft desperately wants to collect information on you and send it back. I don't really know what their motives are. I don't trust them very well, but I, I, I trust Google less because I think Google's uh, absolutely uh, refined how to m maximize uh, data data analysis and resell it. And uh, I, I, I'm a Firefox user. It's got its ups and downs, and I'm just going to stick with Firefox and that I trust that they're at least not doing any of this nonsense. Uh, there may be other problems with it, but in the end, most things can be solved with a spoofed user agent. I don't really have compatibility issues. I have a lot of things that say they won't work and that I just spoof my agent to be Chrome and they're fine. Firefox works for me, but, but uh, for folks that are concerned about all this stuff, uh, if you rely on that, I mean, tab syncing is a huge part of my life. If I was gonna lose that, I'd be pretty angry because I've got uh, you know six, seven computers I'm using on a regular basis and I love being able to you know shift my tabs from one machine to the other machine. And there's a lot of other uh, options available as well, I believe. Uh, in addition to things built into your browser, there is, um, an extension called Flockus, uh, F-L-O-C-C-U-S. Uh, I've got that installed in my Firefox as well, just to play with it. And it'll let you sync your tabs, bookmarks, passwords to whatever thing you want. So you could store them in a personal Dropbox or in a OneDrive, or you could sync them to your next cloud. Um, you can, you know, uh, move them around wherever you want and still have sync, even if the, you're not using, say, Microsoft's uh, built-in sync in Edge or, or Google's built-in sync in Chrome. So that's an alternative for people. March 15th is the day you have to worry about it. So you've got two months, uh, two pandemic months, which is like five normal years uh, to figure out how you're going to how you're going to do this if you're a Chromium user and you remain on Linux. Well, yeah, we'll watch that space. Again, I'm using both Firefox and Chrome. Um, I, I separate work and personal life from my devices. I'm not doing any tab sync. I've never thought about it. Um, and that's probably a good thing, especially because I've started doing a lot of programming recently. Uh, the last thing I need is all those Stack Overflow tabs syncing across to my phone or other device, but um, that's some good advice. Well, there. it doesn't automatically sync them, right? The idea is that they're available. So I can go in and say, uh, show me all the tabs on my laptop when I'm on my desktop and I can see the list of all the tabs and I can click one and it'll bring it over. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so I use it a lot for things like uh, I'll, I'll be looking for recipes on my computer. I'll find a recipe I wanna cook with and then I'll use Tab Sync to send it to my Chromebook, which I have in the kitchen. And then I have the recipe up on the screen on the Chromebook. It's a very, very useful feature. <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah, I'm keen to give that a go. Um, in saying that, I definitely won't be using it with recipes because the best thing that I can cook, I think, is uh, pancakes that I found on a child's recipe website. But that's a story for another day. So the next one on my list, I've got uh, the Beagleboard running RISC-V. You know, we talked about the M1 processor. 
everyone's talking about ARM, but there's this little faction going on in the background when it comes to uh, Risk Five, and the Beagle board is coming out later this year, um, running Risk Five uh, processor architecture. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, my first thoughts were somebody's making Risk Five processors. Uh, I was kind of excited. I mean, this has been something that's been talked about for gosh, coming up on ten years, I believe, and I'm kind of excited for it. I, I think it's it's early days, and there's a lot to be determined yet. I mean, ARM's been around for. 30 years now, right? And it, and it, the M1 is a, a, a proof of what you can accomplish with a risk-based processor. And it's very impressive. Like no matter how I feel about Apple, uh, I am jealous of the M1 Apple, you know, MacBooks and jealous of the battery life and performance that I wish that I wish I could have. I'm not wishing it enough that I'm willing to give in to Apple, but I'm jealous. And the next best thing we can do right now is other ARM systems, which are certainly inferior to the M1, but quite impressive. But again, it's 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 intellectual property that you got to pay for a license. And, and even worse now, it's owned by NVIDIA. And I think that's going to really, I think it's going to hurt ARM quite a bit to be owned by NVIDIA. I think there's a lot of companies that are uncomfortable maybe doing business uh, with NVIDIA. Certainly for a long time, I, I believe uh, AMD is an ARM licensee. So that'll be interesting to see what happens between AMD and NVIDIA with that rivalry, considering uh, AMD's a, a, a license holder for ARM. But that's the key point, license. And that's what's exciting about this RISC-V announcement uh, to me. Uh, I'm not going to buy one, I don't think, because it sounds like it's pretty early days. Performance is quite weak. There's no GPU. It's not going to be a, I don't think it's going to be terribly more useful than an Arduino necessarily at the beginning. But I'm excited because it's an open platform. And if we can mature this platform and if people that are worried about the future of ARM, big OEMs uh, that cur currently use a lot of ARM chips in their mobile phones like you know, LG and Samsung and others uh, see the opportunity in RISC-V, a few billion dollars here and there could really rocket ship it to the front and, and be a real competitor to something like the M1 if it gets some, uh, some support and love from, from companies that maybe are sick of paying licenses to NVIDIA. Yeah, well, let's see what happens there. What really stuck out to me was, uh, again, the interfaces on it look really good. Standard things, HDMI, loads of USB ports. It's got a Type-C port for power as well, which I like because one of the most annoying things uh, for my Raspberry Pi, for example, is just that micro USB cable. I, I don't know. I find it really clunky and annoying. Um, so Type-C everywhere is always a good thing. I got really excited because they're advertising that it's got a neural engine for hardware accelerated computing. What's cool is they didn't go too hard with buzzwords there, but um, if you look at like Intel, they released the Intel Neural Compute Stick, and it was like 200 bucks US, and it was designed to do uh, machine learning, deep learning, all of the fun stuff that comes along with AI and all those buzzwords. So if you had something like a Raspberry Pi, which is low powered and not so great for training like a machine learning or a neural network, you could buy this Intel Compute Stick and for an extra couple hundred bucks, have yourself a small form factor factor computer, such as the Raspberry Pi, and then offload all of the process into this neural compute stick. Part of the big old board that they're re releasing is with support for that neural engine, so you can offload that computing and have a cheap, small form factor device running RISC-V that's going to be capable of potentially training some really cool uh, neural networks and do some fun stuff with AI. So I reckon that's uh, definitely a project to, to base, well, to, to look at and potentially play with later on. If I had my time over, I might not have invested in the Pine phone and spent the money on a couple of these to see what they were like. 
Well, it looks like uh, NVIDIA is also getting in on the RISC-V game. Uh, looking at the list of companies that are looking at producing chips, NVIDIA is looking to replace their Falcon processor uh, on GeForce graphics cards with a RISC-V implementation. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder if they'll continue to do that or if they'll shift over to ARM now that that deal's been been completed. But it looks like there's a lot of support for uh, for RISC-V from manufacturers, which is pretty exciting. In fact, the biggest one probably being, aside from NVIDIA, uh, the Alibaba Group, which, uh, aside from some of the politics going on right now with Alibaba's founder, obviously they're just a, a powerhouse of, of money and tech capability that if they're throwing weight behind this, they really might have some legs. Let's uh, watch this space. And uh, the final one that I've got here, and a short and sharp one, I had no idea about this, but I read it um, on Twitter and just could not turn away. Apparently, in Ubuntu uh, 2104, still say it seems weird saying 21, but 2104, they're adding some extra security and they're making home drives private. I don't know if you're aware, Chet, but apparently, early days of Ubuntu, they decided to make it so every user had read-only access of other users' home directories to make sharing of files easy and convenient. And that blew my mind. That I Like, this is Windows 98 stuff when it comes to security. Um, like, yeah, I get there's maybe there's a trust there because you're all sharing a computer, but that's, uh, that's pretty appalling, and uh, I, I can't believe I'm only finding this out now. Yeah, I mean, that's like seeing a headline that says BMW next year to make keys different for each car. Pretty crazy. I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I wouldn't have, I mean, the, the bad thing is these types of decisions, if you're not made explicitly aware of them, are really dangerous because I would have never thought to check perms. Like, I just assume a home directory is 700. Like, that's that. I wouldn't expect it to be any other way. So I, I, I don't quite uh, comprehend that decision. Uh, I guess there is a caveat that I was thinking about since we initially discussed the topics a little while ago, which is, I believe on installation in Ubuntu, uh, it does prompt you to potentially encrypt your home directory and put... So instead of doing full disk encryption, which is the right way to do it, they instead don't do full disk encryption, but prompt you to encrypt your home directory with a password. And so that would at least prevent other users from seeing your home directory without this change. But it never occurred to me that I needed to encrypt my home directory if I didn't want other users on a shared system to see my folder. Uh, it's kind of it's, it, it's mind-boggling considering how many people use Ubuntu for servers, where it's you know, designed for multi-user environments. We're not talking about my laptop and maybe my, my wife or child having a, an account. Um, we're talking about you know, multi-use systems that are specifically purposed for that. That's... Uh, Makes me think about the home directory entirely differently now. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to test it on the window. Uh, sorry, not Windows, on the server platform. Uh, I think from a like from a desktop perspective, I can understand the logic, but it, I don't think that it, they've implemented that for server as well. Uh, having done penetration tests and things like that on Ubuntu server many times before, especially when it comes to attacking web applications and things like that. Surely it's not that like that on servers, like having tried to go through users' home directories before as an unprivileged user. But um, yeah, that's one that I'm going to have to test. But it sounds like it's definitely there on the desktop edition, and that is absolutely terrifying. So I think we're going to end on that note. This has been Linux at Work, episode number five. 
Yeah, it's good uh, chatting again, Ben. To contact us, uh, please stay in touch. Visit www.linuxatwork.org. Our podcasts are available there. They're available via RSS. They're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else uh, fine podcasts are syndicated. We appreciate your feedback and ideas, so uh, please share them with us. Uh, you can share them via email at hosts at linuxatwork.org. You can share them with us on Twitter at Linux at Work. Or you can join the conversation at Reddit at slash r slash Linux at work. Don't say you got everything gonna be everyone. Don't say you got anything, gotta be everything